Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Greg Whitwell. I'm the Dean of the University of Sydney Business School, and it gives me great pleasure in welcoming you to this Sydney Ideas event which has the title Cultural Leadership, Culture Diversity in Leadership, Where Does Australia Sit in 2018? The University of Sydney is an institution that is all about generating and disseminating knowledge. And in that sense, we are continuing a tradition that is at least 60,000 years old. And so I'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. That said, I can't help but reflect on the fact that while 3%, 3 of the Australian population have an Indigenous background, only 0.4% of senior leaders in this country come from an Indigenous background, which leads me to the purpose of today's event. Australia prides itself, I think quite rightly, on its multiculturalism. But the question is, is cultural diversity a feature of the most senior leadership posts in Australia? If not, what needs to be done to increase cultural diversity in senior leadership positions? What would be some of the main challenges in increasing cultural diversity and how might they be overcome? These are some of the key issues that we'll be exploring today. The purpose of today's event as well is to launch a report, this report, I think all of you should have copies of that, that has the title, Leading for Change, a Blueprint for Cultural Diversity and inclusive leadership revisited. And the key word is revisited because we are revisiting a document uh, published in 2016, the Leading for Change report of 2016. Dr. Tim Supamasan, Australia's Race Discrimination Commissioner, will outline the findings of this 2018 report. Dr. Michael Spence, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, will launch the report. And after that, Tim and Michael uh, will join Swati Dave, who's the Managing Director and CEO of EPIC, the Export Finance and Insurance Corporation, and Scylla Robinson, who's a partner at Clayton Utz, and they'll be participating in a panel discussion. That panel discussion will be led by me with some questions from me, but after that, there'll be an opportunity for an audience Q&A. So I would ask you now to begin to think about some of the key questions that you might want to ask. And I'll remind you at the appropriate time that when we do begin the Q&A session, we'll be asking you to use the microphone to my left, to your right. I need, uh, finally, to say to you that today's event is being recorded and filmed. So it gives me great pleasure now to invite Dr. Tim Supamasan to address the question, cultural diversity in leadership, where does Australia sit in 2018? Tim, thank you. Thanks. 
Well, good afternoon, and, and thank you very much, uh, Professor Whitwell, for your hospitality here at the University of Sydney Business School. Uh, to Vice-Chancellor Dr Michael Spence, Philip Ivanov, the CEO of Asia Society Australia, Professor Rosalind Croucher, uh, President of the Australian Human Rights Commission, and other distinguished guests. Uh, as Greg mentioned, two years ago we conducted a study into cultural diversity and leadership, and what we found didn't surprise many of us. It found that about 95% of senior leaders in Australian politics, business, government and higher education were from an Anglo-Celtic or European background. Uh, we've repeated the exercise this year in part because we wanted to see whether the situation had changed, whether there had been an improvement, uh, and we also wanted to consider the work that some organisations have, have been doing, and, and that's been documented in this year's Leading for Change report. Uh, the story is not necessarily a happy one. Uh, if we were to hold a mirror up to Australian society and ask whether the leadership we have across our institutions looks right for an egalitarian and multicultural society that is built on a strong sense of a fair go, uh, I think a reasonable person would say we had some way to go. We have some way to go. Uh, we have estimated in this report, and if you look on screen, you, you'll see a chart illustrating this, that about 58% of the Australian population has an Anglo-Celtic cultural background. About 21%, we estimate, have a non-European cultural background, so that's uh, Asian, Middle Eastern, North African, uh, 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 South American, Pacific Islander um, backgrounds. Uh, we have about 18% who have a European cultural background, uh, so this is from continental Europe, but not including the British Isles and Ireland, and 3% have an Indigenous cultural background. Um, but just, just consider, consider that and consider the kind of Australia you encounter when you walk down the street uh, on Pitt Street Mall or in your suburb or, or in your shopping centre. Uh, close to a quarter of our population has a non-European or Indigenous cultural background. Uh, but now think of your own workplaces, wherever you might come from, and think about who occupies the senior leadership positions there. Uh, it is rare to see senior leaders in Australian business, politics, government, uh, or higher education who have a non-European cultural background. And we should be asking why. Um, particularly when you look at who's coming out of our high schools as our top achieving students or from our universities as our prize winners and leading graduates. There simply is no issue about diversity and talent in Australia, but there does appear to be an issue with that talent reaching the top. A quick word on the numbers. Uh, we looked at almost 2,500 senior leaders in the ASX 200, in the federal parliament, uh, across federal and state government departments, uh, across the 39 universities, uh, and we found that about 95% uh, have a European or Anglo-Celtic background. Uh, put another way, 5% of senior leaders in that group have a non-European or Indigenous background. If you look more specifically at the CEO cohort, so these are the CEOs of our publicly listed companies in the ASX 200, uh, ministers in our federal government, uh, 
secretaries and directors general of government departments and vice chancellors of Australian universities, you find that 97% of CEOs have an Anglo-Celtic or European cultural background. In other words, 3% have a non-European or Indigenous cultural background. Um, now, numbers can be uh, can can be tricky to consume, but I, I'll put to you in absolute terms what this actually looks like and means. Of the 372 chief executives we identified in this study, 11 have a non-European or Indigenous cultural background. Now that's enough for a cricket team, uh, but not enough for a multicultural Australia. Uh, so what then can be, be done about this? And this is what uh, the conversation today I, I hope will explore. And, and I'm looking forward to uh, Dr. Spencer's uh, remarks. Uh, uh, Michael, if I may, you've, you've been a, a champion on, on cultural diversity and I know you, you feel passionately about this issue. And I can't stress how important it is to have senior leaders in Australia who are prepared to advocate for cultural diversity, who, who aren't afraid to put their shoulder to the wheel. Uh, that is the most, one of the most important things we can do about this right now. Uh, have leadership on this issue, and that means ensuring that we talk about cultural diversity and that we recognise we can do better. We also need to have data and targets as part of this conversation. Uh, Australia is perhaps anomalous among English-speaking democracies in not collecting comprehensive data on its ethnic and racial composition. If you compare us, for example, to New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand census, in fact, uh, measures the ethnic composition of its population in a fairly straightforward way. Uh, in Australia, we have responses about people's ancestries, their places of birth, the languages they speak, uh, but those things don't necessarily give us a precise picture of our ethnic and cultural background. Uh, once we have the data, though, uh, we can be in a position to think about setting targets. Uh, and, and here, the message we have in, in this report is a very simple one. Um, uh, uh, targets give you something to aim for. And if we celebrate our diversity and believe it's important, then it's only right that we aim for it to be better reflected in our leadership institutions. Uh, because it's important that those growing up in our society as boys and girls can have role models and people they can look up to. Uh, this is fundamentally a question about the country we should want to be. Uh, we should want to be an Australia where every boy and girl can aspire to become Prime Minister or the CEO of a company or a university vice-chancellor without having to second-guess themselves because of their cultural background. Uh, to put it another way, uh, you can't be what you can't see, as it's been said, or alternatively, seeing is believing. Uh, finally, you need to tackle bias and discrimination and do it in a forthright way. Uh, very often we skirt around these questions by talking about unconscious bias, and unconscious bias exists. But sometimes we label what is very conscious bias or discrimination as unconscious, and we need to be better at calling things out. Uh, these are the sorts of conversations that we hope to provoke and to continue uh, having. 
Uh, and, and the challenge I would put to you today to think about is uh, this challenge of having greater literacy and sophistication around how we talk about our cultural and racial differences. Uh, all too often we perhaps default to having a colorblind approach to dealing with our multiculturalism. Uh, we're happy with, with multiculturalism if it means celebrating different cultures, sampling different cuisines, or partaking in different festivals. We're not so adept at dealing with uh, more fundamental differences in, in attitudes, uh, behaviour, and in reflecting on ourselves and the power that exists in our institutions. Uh, I hope this report uh, uh, gives you some food for thought, pun intended, uh, I, I, and, and I also hope that it gives you some of the intellectual tools to be able to deal, uh, for example, with the deflections that can often arise on, on race or cultural diversity, uh, because there is no more important time than right now to get our multiculturalism right. You think about what's happening around the world, you think about the backlash against immigration that is occurring in many Western liberal democracies. This is a challenging time and it's become all the more important for us to lead and to set an example. Uh, now, like Greg, I believe Australia is a success story of multiculturalism, but if we were to look in the mirror and take a hard look at ourselves, uh, I believe that success is not yet complete. Thank you very much, Tim. I'd now like to ask Dr. Michael Spence, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, to launch the report. Michael. Thank you. Well, I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging. Very keen to celebrate not only the extraordinary traditions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, culture in this country, but also the great future that we can have in a shared Australia. Well, Tim is right. The numbers are kind of challenging, but I have to say it wasn't numbers that first struck me when I arrived in Australia from the United Kingdom after 20 years away. It wasn't numbers, but actually the look of Australia. The look of the people that I saw on the television, the look of the people that I saw in leadership positions, and the difference that there was then between the look of those people and the people whom I encountered on the streets of Sydney and more generally. And that was quite shocking to me because I had gone to Australia in 1988 confident that we were building a multicultural society. And what I came back to 20 years later was a country that had all the rhetoric and none of the reality, and in many ways had come much less far than the United Kingdom in which these issues had been often very hard fought. And I wondered why that might be, why we're one but we're many and from many lands we come, why we've endless planes to share and all the rest of it, so long as you assume they're ours. And yet the reality of our life together was so different. So 
we had some work to do with our um, HR team in relation to diversity and we'd written our Wingaramura strategy in relation to Indigenous education and research and we had um, done work in relation to women's leadership across the university and I said the thing I'm really interested in is promoting um, uh, promoting leadership amongst people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I really want to work on that in the university over the next little while. And they said, uh, Vice-Chancellor, we think that we might do this program in relation to people of diverse sexualities and genders. I said, eh, people of diverse sexualities and genders, I'm sure, experience discrimination at the university, and I don't minimise that in any way, but they are actually well represented at every le level of leadership in the university. Um, that seems not true in relation to people of cultural and linguistic diversity because we have a remarkably homogenous leadership group across the university. And so I sent them away to do the project and they came back and they said, and I said to them, so what are we going to do now in the diversity space? And they said, well, we've got this great program in relation to people of diverse sexualities and genders. And I said, well, what about the culture and linguistically diverse stuff? And somebody said, with shocking truthfulness, we just don't talk about race in Australia, Vice-Chancellor. You haven't been back long enough. And that's the truth. We've got the rhetoric, but the reality of our life is so different. And that's where this report is so incredibly important. These are not easy issues. Culture binds, culture gives you a sense of belonging, culture gives you an identity. But culture also binds, gives you a sense of identity by excluding. Culture creates community and culture divides communities. And that, of course, is a lived reality. Look at the way in which Sydney is, 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 is ghettoised in all sorts of ways, not only along languages of race, uh, uh, um, issues of racial or ethnic identity. Culture is a good, powerful, binding force that also creates division. And more than that, a multicultural society, a society where we're not, as, um, uh, as Tim put it, colourblind, but respect and celebrate difference, that also requires the ability to disagree well. It requires the ability to understand the perspective of the other and nevertheless to say, but there are aspects of your cultural tradition that I can't accept in ways that open communication rather than shutting it down. And we're pretty lousy at disagreeing well in the Western world at the moment. And these things seem to me to be a challenge for the university because what we believe we do is create leaders for our community. When I first arrived on campus, I met with the heads of our student societies. I said, what's your experience of diversity on campus? They said, oh, very diverse. You know, here's the um, uh, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender group. Here's the Chinese um, student societies, Islamic student society, the evangelical Christians. I said, 53,000 students. I bet you can commute in and mix with kids from your own subculture and go home again and never encounter anybody whom you regard as the other. And they said, actually, it's worse than that. Our group, our classes are big enough so we can make sure we only ever do group work with people from our own subculture. So not even in the classroom do we ever have to encounter the other. And we're building leaders for a new community. 
So the university has to take seriously its responsibility to change the profile of its leadership because you can't become what you can't see. It has to take responsibility for training our students to think differently. It has to take responsibility for an open public discussion here at the university and elsewhere, what it means to disagree well and to disagree across cultural barriers. Because it seems to me that we can't go back. Whether you think a multicultural society is a good idea or not a good idea, and I'm increasingly convinced that many people are now not so sure, we have one. And so the university needs to be making sure that we are preparing leaders who can work in a society like Australia, who can build the kind of relationships overseas that this country needs to build, and who can do so in a way that respects difference, celebrates identity, and is able to disagree, able to talk across the barriers that it might otherwise divide us. We think the university has a particular role in this. We have to admit, we haven't been conscious of it. You just don't talk about race in Australia. And the university has, in its latest strategy, committed to changing that, both in the way that we think about um, the diversity of our staff and supporting staff um, uh, uh, to leadership positions um, across a range of backgrounds but also in thinking about what we do with our students. So it's a tremendous privilege um, to be able to be a part of this event today. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to the Commission for um, launching this report here at the University of Sydney. And as I officially launch it, I plant the flag that whatever we may or may not have been in the past, we're committed as an institution to trying to be a part of the solution to what we think is one of Australia's most pressing problems if we are to remain an effective, dynamic, agile, economically productive society that is also a great place to live. So it's my great pleasure officially to declare this report launched. Well, now that we've officially launched the report, we'll move to the next part of the proceedings. We're going to have a panel discussion. So I'd ask Michael and Tim to join both Swati and Scylla here at the front, please. And I'd remind people that there'll be a conversation with some questions directed by me initially, and then after that, we'll be opening it up to a, a Q&A from the audience. I might ask Swati and Scylla just an obvious question. Did, did, did the findings in the report surprise you at all? Not at all. In fact, if I think about my career over the last 30 plus years, it's exactly what I saw. Um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't very much diversity um, as I was coming through, starting from a very junior role to certainly very senior roles in, in the last couple of years. And, I, you know, for most of my career, there would be no one who looked like me, you know, and it tended to be, there was this gender piece as well, which is, it was predominantly men. And um, a lot of my experience around that time was around, you know, how do I, how do I make myself heard? Um, how do I actually 
be relevant and how do I create impact? Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing surprises me in this report and that's a sad thing. My, so. experience, my experience is the same. Sadly, nothing surprised me. Um, I have the luxury and, uh, you know, the pleasure to deal with the C-suite and, and the level just below the C-suite in the work that I do every day. And I was talking to my team about the fact that they are predominantly white men and women. So we see day to day that unfortunately there isn't that diversity there. Um, and, it, and it saddens me, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. And, and similarly throughout, throughout my career, there have been a handful of people um, that I've worked with that have been from you know, non-Anglo-Celtic um, or European backgrounds that I've looked to for, for support, but there's just not, not enough of them around. <laughs> One of the, uh, I should point out to the audience too, that one of the, the fundamental changes in th this report, the 2018 report compared to the 2016 one, is that we have expanded the population that we're investigating so that uh, in particular we've gone beyond the CEOs and looking at the C-suite and in the case of universities we've gone beyond vice chances and included vice chances and yet fundamentally the results are just the same as they were in 2016. Um, put another way, it looks like in the last couple of years we've not made any progress. The question then, the really big question for all of us, and I'd like to hear from everyone on the panel is, what? let's begin with this, what in your view are the main barriers, main barriers to improving cultural diversity in Australian leadership? What are they? Um, th I mean, there could be lots, but if I think about it, is there priority given to this? You know, is it seen as important enough? The way I've approached, I guess, this challenge within my businesses is to think about, well, if we want to have innovative, creative growth options for our business, mm -hmm. then you need to have very different perspectives around the table. You need to bring different mindsets to that challenge. So why wouldn't you want people you know, that are multilingual or can bridge different cultures or indeed bring a different lens that's framed from their cultural backgrounds which actually gives you another way of looking at a problem or a solution. So you know that's the way I frame it that that's what I want to do in my business and that's what I do in my business. There's the other piece around you know do we have data and that's something that Tim's picked up in the report. You know do we actually have data? Do we track any of this stuff? Um, you know, if I think about my organisation, we actually track. I mean, we've got 29% of people that are from a non-English speaking background and 51% who have parents from a non-English speaking background and we track what languages people speak. Because everyone we interact with is in different countries. So it's absolutely critical that you have people that you leverage for mm -hmm. that interaction and to drive the right outcome. So I look at it as, you know, a business imperative. It's really important for me to distinguish the value that we bring by leveraging all the people in the business. Um, so the case still needs to be made for think, cultural diversity, I think, think so, really? because it's not a well-accepted case. I don't know that people really have thought about it. So people have just got over the gender piece, but they haven't got to the cultural piece. And I, and I think the big challenge is, you know, you look at it start, you know, you look at the whole framework. So we're not just talking about executives. You look at the board composition. You know, they, they're kind of getting to the gender piece. They haven't even started with the cultural piece. So it, there's a, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of work to do from right at the top. I'd like to ask each of the, the panel members the same question, but I can't resist in interjecting and, 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 and saying to you that, that it is the case, indeed, that many people, I think, resist the argument that cultural diversity actually does have profoundly positive effects on decision-making and on the performance of organisations. I don't know when that is going to begin to be accepted widely, and I'm not sure what more we can do. Uh, but the case is there, and it's been made quite yes. clearly, but there's a resistance to accepting it. Scylla, what do you think are the key, the, the key barriers? I think that the key barriers, in, in my experience, are really in the way that our culture operates. I think a lot of Australians love their Aussie identity and they and they really they want to be top Aussies you know what I mean so I think part of that is the sort of fair go all round and not being a whinger all of these things mean that there is this identity that many people from non um, you know Anglo-Celtic and, and European backgrounds also love so growing up as someone who wasn't who has an Aussie mum and a uh, uh, an Anglo-Celtic mum and a, and a dad who's half Indian and half Sri Lankan I wanted to blend in. Um, growing up in Coogee, I, I wanted to just be like everybody else. And that the Aussie way of life and that multiculturalism was something that, you know, I really valued. And so I think then that means it's much harder to then unpack. You know, I always said if someone said, where are you from? I'm Australian, you know. And, and it's that, that problem that we have that we, we say that we're Australian, we are proud of that, but we, we don't unpack it to the next level. So I think a lot of the way of, you know, Australian society means that there's a disinclination because there is some enjoyment of that sameness and we do enjoy um, a lot about the, the Aussie way of life, but then it means there's a disinclination to have those honest, authentic discussions. Tim, I might get you to reflect on on something that, in fact, Swati was talking about, the, the, the notion that you and I have heard a lot in our research that well, let's deal with gender diversity first, and at some stage, we don't know when, but at some stage, eventually, let's tackle cultural diversity, and perhaps sexual diversity before that too. So let's, uh, let, let's put cultural diversity way down the list. Why is that? Hmm. Uh, you, you touch on a, a very profound problem that leads to inertia in, in organisations and, and among leaders on, on this issue. Uh, there, there, there is a sense that cultural diversity is the poorer cousin or member of the diversity family and maybe that reflects the fact that those from multicultural backgrounds haven't agitated uh, in, in an organised or systematic way. Uh, what we're seeing on cultural diversity and the conversation we're having today um, reflects early days, uh, which is strange for a multicultural society that has been multicultural for at least four decades. Um, uh, so so there, there, there's something around, around that and, it, and it, it's got to do with our history and the fact that when we've talked about racial equality or multiculturalism in Australia, it, it wasn't really the product of a social movement or an organised push to agitate. You think of America and the civil rights movement in the 1960s and how that uh, was, was central to the equation around racial equality. Or you, you think about the race riots that were regular features of life in the UK in the 70s and 80s and the, the political movements around that. Uh, but you look at Australian multiculturalism and it was born out of a, a consensus, a peaceful consensus that white Australia needed to come to an end. Uh, and it wasn't something that was 
arrived at through public debate or contest in the same way. Uh, going to your other question mm -hmm. about the, the barriers, the barriers yeah. um, uh, on, on the inertia uh, point, uh, uh, some, some wit said to me, uh, there are two reasons uh, people hire others. Uh, one is they like you, and two is you, you are like them. Uh, and, and, and the sense of familiarity that many people might have uh, around, uh, 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 around people from Anglo-Celtic and European backgrounds, the relative proximity between um, those two backgrounds, broadly speaking, uh, the fact that if you turn on the television or, or watch uh, public debates, uh, we see a certain kind of, of leader in Australian society, all these things make the current situation feel like a natural order. Uh, so, so, so that's that's one barrier. And another barrier I'd very quickly touch on is this uh, perception that may exist in some quarters that those from non-European backgrounds may be better suited to technical roles in organisations, but may not quite have the aptitude or the sophistication to lead organisations. Uh, and that's a very challenging stereotype to, to throw into the conversation, but uh, if you think about the trajectories that graduates are experiencing in organisations, uh, there might be something in that. Yeah, we, with a bit of luck, get onto ethnic zoning later, and we might get an opportunity to repeat the story about you telling someone you worked at the, 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 the Human Rights Commission, and only to be asked, so you work in IT, do you? Um, Sometimes finance, finance uh, is yeah, running there too. Now, Michael, would you add to the list of barriers? And I, I'm really intrigued with your comment, that, well, the observation, the response that you got about we don't talk about race here at the university. Why not? Um, so, uh, uh, making a cultural stereotype of my own, <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to add to something that Scylla said about the role of consensus in Australian society. Um, uh, so, I had a bit of reverse culture shock when I came back after 20 years away, I'm prepared to admit it. Um, and uh, one of the things that explained, uh, one of the things that um, I found particularly difficult, um, a friend of mine who'd also come from overseas turned on when he said, Michael, you've got to remember that Australians take passive aggression to a new art form. <laughs> right? And that was because I was used to saying in a meeting, let's do this, and people would say, nah, we did that in 12.30, we did it in 15.50, it didn't work, it's a really dumb idea, you can't do it. And you'd kind of agitate, and eventually people would agree, and um, they'd go away, we'd, we'd go away and we'd do it. Right? I got to Australia and I'd say, let's do this. And everybody in the meeting would say, what a wonderful idea, Vice-Chancellor. <laughs> it's just terrific. Let's do it. That's great. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And then um, uh, nothing would happen. That's, exa <laughs> that's exactly right. And the reason, that nothing, the reason that that works is because it's a deeply consensus society and nobody wants to be the person in the meeting, particularly to the boss, who says, this is not a great idea. Um, and uh, uh, But then um, informal networks of information work very powerfully outside the meeting and people know this isn't such a great idea. So it's a place where consensus and tacit um, information are very um, important and where um, open respectful disagreement is often regarded as quite challenging. Um, and I think those aspects of um, 
Australian culture really need to be thought through in this space because if you're not from um, the dominant culture, and, and, and I don't mean that in terms of your linguistic background, but just your ability or whatever it might be, but your ability to navigate the power structures of this culture, um, you don't ha necessarily have the tacit knowledge. You understand that consensus is important and not standing out. Um, and you probably know that disagreement doesn't work all that well. So I think the skills to lead in this community are particularly informal and particularly culturally bound, and that might be a barrier. Okay. What are we going to do, Swati? What can organisations do? So I kind of think, I mean, you have to look at it as a whole system. So I still start with the proposition that you need to have boards that have cultural diversity, because that is setting a symbolism and expectation of what is what is normal and what is acceptable and what is being welcomed. So I think that's a really important piece. You know, in terms of leadership, so, you know, I kind of personalise it and say, okay, so I'm a leader. What am I going to do differently? So there's the piece around, you know, you have to be, you have to be the champion. You have to actively um, make it a priority. You have to make sure people know that you're going to measure it. And there's the piece around sponsorship. Um, and it is about backing people into roles, right? I mean, we, we tend to be quite comfortable backing people that look like us into roles because they're really nice people. But when it's somebody that looks different or has a different background, we're less likely to do it. So I think we have to have that mind shift to say, I'm going to back this person and then it's about setting them up for success which is the whole inclusion piece so you don't just put people in roles and then you go off you go i've done my bit you've actually got to put some supporting mechanisms around them to help them succeed and that's the piece you know that i think is still very missing even in organizations that work very hard to put people in roles in leadership roles because quite often when you have, you know, when you are, let's say, different, um, you don't have the network. You don't have somebody you can ring and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. What can you advise me? You're pretty much on your own. So creating that supporting ne network is really important. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the other hygiene things. I know for me, when I used to look at my, my uh, collection of people, I would always want to intervene in the whole people process. So in the recruitment process, making sure that we're not bringing bias into who we're hiring. And when we're measuring people, when we're doing performance discussions, making sure that some of the characteristics that don't define, you know, what leadership looks like is not, is not measured negatively. Because, you know, it's quite easy for people to say, oh, look, they don't speak up or they don't project themselves or they don't have, you know, the leadership traits and say, well, I'm going to rank them low and, and I'm not going to give them the right remuneration or that I'm not going to promote them. So it's very easy for people to fall into that trap of working through a system that's actually been created for the predominant population and actually is not recognising that not everybody looks and acts and behaves in that way. So intervening is really important. Scylla, are there any examples that you'd give specifically at Clayton Utes or indeed other leading law firms 
in which they've tried to get culture diversity right that you, you could outline for us? Yeah, look, I think it's a absolutely a work in progress, um, but we are just about to, across a bunch of different um, law firms, um, a survey so that we can try and obtain that data because none of us have it. Uh, we can see that in the partnership ranks there's a handful of ethnically diverse um, partners across the different um, organisations and obviously that's not reflective of society or Australian universities. Um, so, you know, with the assistance of um, Tim and, you know, the Diversity Council and the like, we're focusing on getting the data first and the, and the firms are working together on that. And then I think certainly within Clayton Utes, uh, we're doing some, we're piloting some reverse mentoring so that we're getting uh, both sort of uh, diverse, uh, diversity in terms of culture as well as ge generational um, cross-pollination of ideas and thoughts. So that's a really exciting thing that we're doing. And then really focusing on the different levels. We've got a rare recruitment tool that we use to so try and tap into people from different backgrounds, whether it's socioeconomic, culturally diverse and the like. So that's helping in terms of getting people in the door. But I think really be giving people um, a platform to talk and not just people that look different. Um, but saying to the people who are predominantly white men, you can talk about this. There is a discomfort there. They don't want to talk about it, uh, but they've all had some experience uh, you know, with people from culturally diverse backgrounds or they've had some uh, experience in their life of discrimination in, in some way, pot potentially less tangibly than us. My mum mentioned coming from the country to the city was something that she, as a white Australian, experienced coming to Sydney. So I think everybody has their personal experience that they can use to have some empathy um, with people from culturally diverse backgrounds. But actually giving people a mandate to talk about it is really important. Tip, could you summarise, just on that theme then, the key recommendations from the report in terms of trying to get cultural diversity right? Uh, we, we've broken it down in, in the following way, to, to think of it in terms of leadership, systems and culture um, and, and and getting leadership is, is obvious get, getting leadership right is obvious and I've already touched on that the systems work has got to involve data and thinking about setting targets uh, now the inevitable conversation around targets is going to be about merit um, so let's preempt that um, what do we mean by merit who defines merit uh, these are questions that we don't always ask and quite often our notions of merit can be culturally inflected. And, and, and Michael made a very, uh, very sharp observation in saying that the way you lead in Australia does require a high level of cultural literacy uh, and a sensitivity to nuances around power and relationships, perhaps more so uh, than in other cultures. Maybe it's got something to do with uh, this paradox in the Australian culture where we are both conformist and irreverent. Uh, we like to challenge, yeah, where we challenge, we like to think that we challenge authority, but maybe in practice we're quite happy to go along with authority, and maybe that's why we've got to express ourselves in passive-aggressive um, ways, Michael. I don't know. I think there's a there's a doctoral thesis in this. If there are any <laughs> graduate students out there, and I'm sure Greg will be very supportive if you do it at the business school. Um, the, the the third set of uh, actions has got to do with culture in organisations, dealing with bias. And the other piece, which I haven't mentioned yet, giving support to multicultural talent and ensuring that you do take a punt on, on those who may not fit, fit the mould. Uh, and in taking a punt, uh, avoid 
the uh, the the uh, the trap of uh, seeing a failure on the part of one person as a representative statement for the entire group. Uh, this is a burden that those from minority backgrounds have to carry in a way that members of a majority group may not. Uh, if you are from a majority background, for example, and you've been selected for something and that doesn't quite come off, no one's going to sit there and go, see, I told you, I told you those uh, Anglo-Celtic Australians can't do this right, or they're not going to say, see, I told you those European Australians just can't do this right. Uh, but I dare say there may be situations where people might come to a conclusion implicitly or explicitly, aha, you see, that's why we can't have someone from that background doing this, because... Uh, you know, the results speak for themselves. So I think if you're going to support people from different backgrounds, you've got to be prepared um, uh, for, for things to come off sometimes and things not to come off, and you've got to avoid judging uh, people and casting uh, a stereotype around a group. A question for Michael, and it's related to what we've been talking about. I'd preface it by saying that uh, shortly after the, report of the, the release of the last report, uh, and in light to this university's commitment to everyone, faculty, professional staff and students, that they be able to develop skills in cultural competence, there was the inevitable backlash. And indeed, um, some commentators, fortunately not many, but some judged us guilty of reverse racism for complaining about the lack of cultural diversity in senior leadership positions and indeed for pushing the notion that we thought that cultural competence was a very important thing for uh, for students and staff to acquire here. Michael, tell me something about what you think the university can and should be doing, not just in terms of, and I think it would be good to talk about this, our cultural competence program, but in terms of the curriculum as well. We're focusing today principally on leadership, but I think that there's a really important role for us in making cultural competence an issue that students can discuss from year one onwards. What do you think? Um, yes. So... <laughs> so. So I think for, uh, for me there's a kind of background question as we think about this broader question, which is um, where we are in this kind of conversation. So if this were the issue in relation to women's equality, uh, um, is this sort of a, a meeting with Emily Pankhurst or um, is this a meeting with sort of third wave feminism? Where, um, where are we? Um, and I get the feeling that in Australia we're more at the Emily Pankhurst end than <laughs> we'd like to be. Um, and that therefore part of the role of the university is precisely to talk about this stuff mm -hmm. endlessly with students, um, with one another, um, in the community more generally, and that will attract flack. And it will attract flack precisely because of the other feature of um, Western liberal democracies at the moment, that, um, that we're not disagreeing well. And interestingly, um, the work of Pippa Norris, who is... Um, uh, we think one of the best quantitative political scientists in the world is provoking a lot of discussion in the United States at the moment, yep. um, where she's done work that says actually um, the Trump vote and the Brexit vote are not about economic disadvantage, and, and, and she has ways of demonstrating that mathematically, you know, in statistically, um, that they're actually about a sense of cultural loss um, and a sense that, uh, uh, that there is a kind of um, panic in particular parts of the community about ideas of diversity being being talked about. 
So the first thing we can do is um, talk about it. Yep. Second thing is we can make sure that as many of our students as possible um, have an experience both on campus um, or off campus and perhaps even overseas, and we're trying to move to 50% of our students, where they actually have to be um, in a situation in which they are um, uh, they are um, the other. Um, you know that, that they know what it feels like to be the other, um, and uh, the a, a, and are able, therefore, in the way Silla was talking about, to reflect on their own experiences of being a country student in the city, or a student with a conservative faith in a liberal consensus, or a student with a whatever it might be, um, and um, then we have also thought about the work that we're doing through the National Centre in actually encouraging students to reflect on these issues as a part of the core curriculum explicitly. Because I think un un until we can name it, race will always be something we don't talk about in Australia, Vice-Chancellor. Um, and we just have to be unashamed about that. Okay. Because it's a competitive disadvantage. Now, it used to floor me how many meetings I went to where my bad Chinese was the best Chinese in the room except for that of the translator, and they were <laughs> high-level business people all talking about our relations with China. And you'd think, what about the fact that your firms are full of very clever Sinophone people? Um, why, why is that voice absent? And I think that's the really important point to make. This is about effectiveness for the country. It's not just a matter of social justice, though it is that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll move very, very shortly to a Q&A session and I'd remind you that what we'll be asking you to do is, so you may have to line up, is to stand at the microphone if you can and, and just briefly identify yourself and then pose the question. Preferably, and we always say this at these sessions, please make it a question uh, and preferably a very brief one rather than a, uh, a statement or a speech. Um, Tim, just one last thing I wanted to talk about, and can you define the notion of ethnic zoning? What is that? Uh, this is something we've thrown into the report this year to, to, to challenge people to think about whether there are concentrations of, of people from particular backgrounds in uh, particular roles or in particular parts of a business or organisation. Uh, or in particular industries, uh, because it goes to that danger of stereotyping that I touched on earlier. Um, that that if you, you might be able to say, for example, if you run an organisation that you've got, say, 25% of your workforce from uh, a non-European cultural who have a non-European cultural background, but if they're heavily concentrated in one particular part of the organisation, then there's a question to be asked, well, um, is there something going on there? How do you think of cultural diversity? Could you be at risk of creating an expectation within the organisation, uh, for example, that uh, if you're from X or Y background, then you've, you're working in IT in the organisation or you're working in finance in the organisation? And it goes to the larger point about trajectories and, uh, and 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 the need for people to be in the right stream as they as they begin their careers and and we don't know where the blockages emerge when you talk about multicultural talent in our organisations and institutions. Uh, like I said, you, you think of who's winning 
prizes at, at, at university prize nights or who's topping the HSC. There's just simply no issue around talent and diversity. But whether it's five years after they enter the workforce or seven or 10 or 15, something is happening. Uh, people are either leaving, but that doesn't explain the whole situation, or somehow they're fading into mediocrity and, and, and they've somehow peaked at 18 or 19 or 20. Um, or there's something else happening within organisations and institutions which mean that they're being overtaken despite what appears to be uh, the, the raw talent that they bring or the discipline that they bring in the early parts of their careers. So that's why we've focused some of the conversation on ethnic zoning to, to challenge people on that. Can I say something about that? that so um, uh, we've thought quite a bit about this in relation to the new curriculum. And, um, several years ago, I got all my team <coughs> to read a book by the Provost of Columbia called Whistling Vivaldi. And he works on um, the performance effects of stereotyping um, and all that stuff about you know the famous experiment where if you take two cohorts of um, equally able young women and you do something that reminds them they're Asian, they do well, and give them a maths test, they do well. If you remind them they're women and you give them a maths test, they do poorly. Um, and um, we, we, um, we, we know that um, these narratives have powerful effects not only on the way performance is received but on the way that um, performance happens as, as well. Um, and again, it's a part of this thing about uh, getting students reflectively to ask the well, why not question. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's going to be powerful because in your own cultural group, those narratives will be deep. Um, you know, um, in, the, in your own cultural group, um, there may be a cultural preference for maths over Latin. Um, and, and, and that's why the university has got to be the place where you get the courage to strike out for Latin if that's what you're good at and you choose to do. Copy DM. Yeah, quite right. Thank you. Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you a man, um, <laughs> certain age, silver head, and uh, undoubtedly Anglo-Saxon. Um, but I'm someone I can tell you who's very proud to work with the Human Rights Commission. Uh, I'm proud to be someone who can throw resources, both intellectual and financial, into something I think is critically important. I'm proud to be part of a university that takes cultural competence seriously. I'm proud to be the dean of a business school that has a compulsory unit in our Bachelor of Commerce degree in which inclusive leadership is the dominant theme. So yes, I don't feel I have to apologise, but I do acknowledge that we have to make change. And I think this forum, this event, and this research and this report are doing exactly what we wanted to do, to generate a discussion and a, and a debate, to illuminate people to engender inevitably disagreement. But I pray, if I can use the words of the Vice-Chancellor, that we can agree that we will disagree well. I want to thank you so much for coming to the Sydney Ideas event. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.